It was earlier this year that the elders gathered for a, a half-day retreat, and we were trying to come up with a one sentence, and that's why uh, it is one sentence, it's 24 words, but it's still only one sentence, of a vision statement that would, it, it, that would capture the idea of what are we all about? What, are, what kinds of uh, ministry activity? What is our goal? What do we want to see happen? If you want to say, how do you spike the ball? When you run across the touchdown line into the end zone, what is a win for the kingdom of God and for this church? And so I want to remind you, in fact, we're going to do this the first weekend of every month um, until the Lord says change it, and that is to remind us of our vision statement. And so it says this, Sebastopol Christian Church exists to build a family of hope-filled followers of Jesus. So we're in the process of building. We're not done. None of us have, have arrived yet. I am perhaps more like Jesus than I was 10 years ago, but I still have a long way to go. And I think, man, I'm surprised nobody said amen to that. <laughs> and, and the reality is, so are you. You know, get that God is not finished with us yet. We're building this hope-filled followers of Jesus. And we're building a family because when we come into God's church together, he makes us brothers and sisters of the same heavenly father. And that puts us into God's family together. And so whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you're male or female, whether you're slave or free, no matter what ethnic background, what language background, God has made us all one in Christ Jesus. And we want to build on that. We want to build this and not just a family of believers that walk around, you know, down in the dumps all the time. We want to build a family of believers who are hope-filled, filled with the hope that God gives us, filled with the hope of the gospel, filled with the truth that when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. The, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. So we're going to continue speaking and preaching and communicating that good news message. So we're, we're building up these hope-filled followers of Jesus, and then it doesn't end there. Because once you and I are saved, once we are brought into a saving relationship with Christ, he says, great, now I want to equip you. Now I want to fill you. Now I want you to be a minister of my new covenant. Now I want you to be my ambassador to go to a world that needs to know that there's a God who loves them, that there's a Savior who died for them that there's a Holy Spirit who can fill them and empower them to live the kind of life that God meant us to live, that he created us to live. So we're going to, together by God's grace and power and Holy Spirit, we're going to bring others into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we tried to do all week with Vacation Bible School. 160 kids, 32 preschoolers, four and five-year-olds, uh, 128 elementary kids, and we knew every one of them because they, they, uh, they know how to have the joy of the Lord when they, once they get going on those songs. And there's a lot of electricity in the room, and the electricity pumps us up until about one o'clock, and then we go home, and everybody's like, all right, now we're going to rest up and get ready for the next day. But it was great because many deep uh, gospel seeds were planted in those young lives. And even if they don't come back to church uh, right now, we know that the truth of God's word has been planted in their hearts. And in some of those kids' cases, they're going to be talking about God and what they've learned to their moms and dads. And maybe, just maybe, and that's our prayer, that these parents would, uh, would 
uh, faith in them would be rekindled. Because I, I have to think a lot of those parents, when they were kids, maybe they went to vacation Bible school. Maybe they had an encounter with the good news message of Christ and the Christian faith. And maybe they even embraced the Christian faith at one time. But over time, somehow, they, they drifted away. You know, the Bible does say in Isaiah's chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And maybe they've turned away uh, from God and drifted away from the faith for a little bit. But maybe this vacation Bible school could be used by God as a catalyst to help bring them back. And that's what we're praying. Amen. And we pray that you will join us in those prayers. All right. We are in a series now. It's called We Have This Treasure. That comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, we're going to be in chapter 4 next week. And we're going to be reading that scripture. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in jars of clay. So we're going to focus on that next Saturday and Sunday. Right now, we're going to be talking about a message called Managers of the New Deal. Managers of the New Deal. We're not talking about FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s, the New Deal. No, nobody's in here is that old. Maybe Lyle? <laughs> I'm thinking, was somebody around when that was, was, was happening? Maybe so. Uh, maybe you were very young when the New Deal came in uh, to, to try to help us get out of the, of the depression. But when I'm talking about a New Deal here, I'm talking about the new agreement with God, the new contract that God has with us in His Son, Jesus. It's also called the New Covenant, the New Covenant, the New Agreement. And God has made us ministers of this new covenant. He's made us managers. We don't own anything in the gospel. We don't own God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or anything like that. We are his servants, but he, by his grace, he makes us managers. And we're going to see that this morning. So let's go right to the beginning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If, if you want to look on your Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, I believe it's on page 804 in most of those Bibles. Let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path, and we want it to guide us in how we live our lives. Uh, but we can't fully understand your word without the Holy Spirit and his help. And so, just as we sang earlier, we sang, uh, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Lord, we're asking your Holy Spirit to do that right now, to illuminate our minds and our hearts and our understanding. Help us to really see clearly what your word is saying to us and give us the ability to figure out and to understand how we can apply this word of life to our lives so that we can become more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I ask your blessing on your servant. Give me clarity and purpose and passion uh, as I preach your word today. We lift up these prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the very first uh, three verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we ask this question, what is it that authenticates a ministry? What is it where you can tell that somebody is really having an effective Christian ministry? And I submit to you that the answer is, look in the lives of the people to whom that person is, is serving or ministering to. Is there any life change? Is there any difference in the way they see the world or they see God? Is there any, way, is there any difference in the way that they live their life? 
Do they have a little bit more of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? Do they have more love and joy and patience and kindness and peace and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Do we see that more in the lives of the congregation or in the ministry of the person who is serving? That is what really authenticates a ministry. Paul is sort of going to remind the Corinthians of that in this passage right here. So Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then Paul says, you know, here's the reality. We don't need a letter of recommendation. We don't need somebody from Jerusalem writing this letter and putting the seal of the church uh, the original church in the book of Acts saying these guys are the real deal. They are real servants of Christ. They're real teachers of the kingdom of God. You can trust these guys. Paul says, we don't need a letter of recommendation like that because verse two, he says, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. And in fact, and then he goes on to say, you know what, this letter that you guys are the letter from Christ, written not with ink, but on human hearts, what you're showing that uh, you're not written with ink, but you're, you're the letter that's actually written by the living God. You're not written on tablets of stone, but you're written on tablets of human hearts. You know, apparently Paul's battling these false teachers, false teachers who are coming into Corinth and they began to teach this church. They had falsified letters of recommendation saying that they were authenticated and they had the authority to do what they were doing. And Paul says, the reality is, you don't need a letter like that. Paul says, oh, you, you want to know where I come from? You don't want to know what qualifies me? Of course, he said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But just to remind you, Paul was on the road. He was on his way to persecute Christians on the way to Damascus and Syria. It's in Acts chapter 9, and he says, in the middle of the day, he was blinded by a light from heaven. He fell off of his horse, and as he's blinded by this light from heaven, there's a voice coming down from heaven, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then he says, Paul, or Saul, get up. And go into the city and you will be told what you must do. That was the beginning of Paul's personal call by the Lord Jesus himself to do the ministry that he's doing. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus says that Paul is going to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Just as Peter was the apostle to the Jews, Paul was going to be the leading missionary, the leading communicator of the good news of Jesus to the Gentile world in the Roman Empire in the first century. And of course, that's what Paul had done. And a few years earlier, Paul had arrived all the way to southern Greece, all the way to this thriving seafaring city of Corinth. And Paul, in fear and trembling, according to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul began to share the gospel with them. And it wasn't just his words. He said, and God was authenticating his message through, through signs and wonders and miracles, proving that the message that Paul was saying to them was true. And so Paul says, uh, in fact, not just that the message was true, but that many people had turned from darkness to light. Many people had become followers of Jesus. They had crossed the line of faith and they began to follow him. Many of them were baptized and a new church from nothing began in the city of Corinth. 
And that church was now thriving. And of course, now these false teachers come in and they're, they're gumming up the works. And Paul's saying, don't forget, who was it that first brought you the good news message? Who was it that modeled for you what the Christian life is supposed to be like? It was me. I, I have the authentication of Christ and the Holy Spirit, and the proof of my ministry is you. The proof of the ministry is your changed lives. So please, don't buy what these other guys are selling. You can listen to what I'm telling you. So he goes on to, in verse 4, and he says, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. I think Paul is saying right here that if we have any success in ministry, if we see any real transformation and change lives, it's because God was blessing the work that we were doing. God was empowering Paul to do the message, to, to do the ministry that he was called to do. And he says, it's not me, it's Christ living in me and through me. And Jesus is empowering Paul to do the ministry. So he says our competency comes from God. It's not from us. It's not how great I am. It's how great a Savior that I serve. And, and, then, and then Paul sort of turns it now and he says, and, and you know, it's not just me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now that you all are followers of Jesus, God has tapped you on the shoulder too. He has called you into his service. He is going to make you his ambassadors to represent him so that, as our vision statement says, you and I together, we can bring others into a growing relationship with our creator. And so Paul says in verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And then he goes on. And he says, I'm going to read this again in the New Living Translation. He says, he's enabled us to be ministers of the new covenant. This is the covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. And so Paul's now going to go into this comparison and saying, look, I, I'm a minister of the new covenant. God, through Jesus, now that you're his follower, he is, he is empowered you and he's equipping you also to be a minister of the new covenant and the new covenant by the way is so much better than that old covenant even though the old covenant came with glory even the old covenant came through Moses and the giving of the law coming down on Mount Sinai the, the giving of the old covenant was was glorious because Moses if you read in Exodus chapter 34 Moses goes up on the mountain and he spends time with God and he's in the presence of God and Moses brings back the Ten Commandments on these tablets of stone and he comes back to the people and the people are looking at Moses going, whoa, this guy's been in the presence of God. And the proof of that was Moses' face. It says Moses' face was shining. It was radiating the glory of God. And so Paul admits, he said, the old covenant, when it first came, it came with glory. And it came with the radiance of God's glory through Moses. In fact, Moses, it even says, Moses uh, didn't want the people to see over time that the glory of God was fading from his face, being in God's presence. So it says Moses put a veil on and he put a veil on to cover it up 
So he didn't say, well, now you guys don't know if it's, uh, am I still radiating or not? I'm not going to tell you because he didn't want the people to know. He didn't want to lose the radiation of God's glory shining on his face. And every time Moses went into the presence of God, he would come back and he would be shining with the glory of God. Now that is the old covenant. That is the law of Moses. Those are those 10 commandments plus another 513 commandments that the Jewish people were given by God to say, this is your calling now. You're going to be in a relationship with God. He's called you to be his chosen people. And in order to be in this covenant relationship with God, your job is to fill all these laws. Your job is to be obedient to all these laws. Thou shouts and thou shalt nots. And there were a lot of them. And they had to do that. And, but the, the problem with the old law and this is why Paul is going to say the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant because the problem with the Old Testament law was it was dependent upon us and our own human ability and our own human power to fulfill it. We didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. We just had the commands of God. Thou shalt not, thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart. Thou shalt have no gods before me. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness or lie. You shall not covet your neighbor's things. And we hear that law and we say, man, those are, if everybody lives that way, we're going to have a great, amazing, free society. But here's the problem. The power to live out that law, to fulfill that law, came from us and our own will and our own heart. And, and Paul is making the case and saying that, that Old Testament law, that covenant, was meant to, to be with us for a time, but it wasn't meant to be in perpetuity. What, what the Old Testament law, Paul says in the New Testament, Paul says the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to show us that we are too weak to keep this law in and of ourselves and that we're sinners, we're breaking the law all the time, and we need a Savior. We need somebody to rescue us from this body of sin and death. And then along comes Jesus, and he institutes the, the Lord's Supper, and he dies on the cross, and he's buried, and he's raised again. And so Jesus is the author and the finisher and the initiator of the new covenant, and he appoints Paul to be a minister of this new covenant. And this new covenant is so much greater than the old covenant. In fact, Paul's going to make this comparison. We go down to verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. And he says, now, if the ministry, and he's talking about the old covenant here, if the ministry that brought death, remember it brought death because if we disobey this law, we are lawbreakers and the wages of sin is death. And so... Instead of this law, this Old Testament law that was supposed to bring life, it didn't end up bringing life because we kept breaking the law. We kept being disobedient to God. We kept being sheep that went our own way. And so God is saying, okay, you break the law. You know, he who, he who breaks that law violates the covenant is going to die. And so instead of bringing life, the old, the old covenant brought death. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, then he says, if that old covenant came with glory, look at verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Because see, there's the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is I'm not depending on myself and my own ability to keep the law of God. 
I am trusting by faith in the ability of Christ who lived perfectly and never sinned, died a sinless death, and now he says, you trust in me and you put your faith in me, and the righteousness of Christ is now imputed or is now credited into my account and into your account who believe. So there's the ministry that brings life is the new covenant through Jesus, not the ministry that ends in death through the old covenant. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, then how much greater is the glory that will last? You know, the glory of the new covenant in Jesus is so much greater than the old covenant. It will never fade away. In the old covenant, the old agreement with God, if that was glorious, how much more glorious is the new covenant? Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was, was so much superior than all the sacrifices in the temple system in Jerusalem because they were sacrificing innocent animals every day for the sins of the people. Every day, at, at two, twice a day at least, there was an innocent lamb that paid with his life for the sins of the people. And that only forgave them up until that moment. And then when the people went and sinned again, there had to be another sacrifice. The beauty of Jesus is that he was a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to die over and over and over again. He already died once. That's all. That fully satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And so now through Jesus, we have this new covenant, new relationship with God that is, that is lasting and glorious and of way surpassing glory than it ever was in the old covenant. So it says in verse 15, uh, I'm sorry, so if you go to the book of Hebrews, and by the way, if you want to see in uh, the, the New Testament where the explanation is of why the new covenant is in Jesus is so much superior than the old covenant, you want to go to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to quote twice from Hebrews, first in chapter 8, where it says in Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7, it says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator of is superior to the old covenant. The new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. That's in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9. It says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus dies as a, as a ransom payment for our sin. Jesus dies once for all, institutes the new covenant. It's of surpassing glory. It's of a glory that will never fade away. You know, even, and I remember a story in John's gospel. When you go to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes down, he's baptized by John the Baptist, comes out of the water, goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, comes back from that victorious time of testing, and John the Baptist looks over and he says, look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a few of John's disciples look over and say, really? The Lamb of God? We need to go meet that guy. So they went over and they started talking to Jesus and they asked him a, a question, some dumb question like I would have asked, which is, hey, Rabbi, where are you staying? <laughs> you know, which is like, I, I, I don't know what else to say. So they said, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. 
I love that about Jesus, you know? Come and see. You wanna know if I'm really the son of God? Come and see. You wanna know if I'm the savior of the world? Come and see. You wanna know if I'm really worth following when I say that I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Why don't you come check me out? He's inviting us to investigate who he is. And he did that with the early disciples. So he says, come and see. They spent time with him. And then there was this moment where uh, one of the disciples got so excited about meeting Jesus that he had to tell his friend and bring his friend to Jesus. And he says to him, he says, we have found the one. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So in other words, even by the, by the Holy Spirit was revealing to this guy that, that even in the law of Moses, there was, this, there was this pointing ahead, pointing ahead to the time when there would be a Messiah, there would be a Savior, there would be somebody to come along who would be the fulfillment of all this Old Testament law. You can read about it in Isaiah 53. You can read about it in Isaiah 7 where it says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Where in the world would God be with his people in such a physical way, if not the birth of Messiah? In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, and, and he'll be called, you know, the, the son, unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And they gave Jesus, they get, excuse me, they gave Messiah four names. What human being who's only a human being could fulfill these four names? They said they're going to call him Wonderful Counselor. They're going to call him Mighty God. They're going to call him Everlasting Father. And they're going to call him Prince of Peace. And the government will be on his shoulders. So they're pointing to the prophets in the law in the Old Testament were pointing to the coming of Messiah. And, and Paul says the Messiah is here, and he's instituted the new covenant, and the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Listen, Paul says, if anyone ought to know the old covenant, he knew the old covenant. He said, as far as legalistic righteousness before that, I was trying to be a, a right living guy before God, but I, I considered all that rubbish. I threw all that away for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior. So Paul knows how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. So we're going to jump ahead now, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 17, because I want to focus on this, because we are in the weekend right before July 4th, and I just want to share a few words with you on this. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, it was no accident why we sang that song, free to run, free to dance, free to live because it ties in the truth that is right here in this verse. Now the Lord, talking about Jesus himself, the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom, there's not condemnation. Remember Romans eight, it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Jesus, in Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of the spirit of death. Another way of describing the new covenant the new agreement, and, and how God is now making us managers of this new agreement. And we get to share that good news with other people. So he says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, I love that idea of freedom. In fact, it, you know, you go back to one of my favorite movies with uh, 
Uh, Mel Gibson, Braveheart, the very end, <laughs> even if he's dying on the rack, being tortured by the, by the English, William, Wilbur, William Wallace was still yelling, freedom, because freedom was worth dying for to him in his days. Freedom was worth dying for to our American forefathers when the colonists penned the Declaration of Independence and says, you know, we are going to dissolve the political bands with Great Britain. We're going to become our own nation. We're going to throw off the shackles of oppression and abuses. And, and I, if I remember this phrase correctly from the Declaration, I read it this week, from the abuses and the usurpations of the British government. We were, we were going to set ourselves free from that, and that freedom would not come without a cost. It would not come without a fight. I did remember another uh, article I read on the, on the Revolutionary War, and it said that, that, that as far as the per capita deaths per the population in America, that almost, almost as many Americans lost their lives in the Revolutionary War per capita as they did in the Civil War, which both North and South were fighting each other. So it was a costly freedom. When they said the word freedom, of course, they meant freedom from a the oppression of a foreign government. They wanted the freedom under God to be able to go after life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They wanted to throw off that despotism. And it was about 60 years after uh, the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the victory over the British. About 60 years later, there was a Frenchman in 1840. He came to visit the United States. He wanted to see for himself this, quote, American experiment of democracy, of self-government, and say, how do you guys do that? Because no other nation on the world, no other nation on the planet has ever successfully been able to have self-government where we would govern ourselves rather than be governed by a despotic ruler or a dictator or a king or somebody like that. So Alex de Tocqueville, he observes our lifestyle, and he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And it was de Tocqueville who wrote this, Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder than to learn how to use that freedom, to use how to freedom. Reminds me of a book that I read uh, earlier this year by a man named Eric Metaxas. Of course, Eric Metaxas was the man who wrote two great biographies, one on Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and the other biography was on William Wilberforce, who helped eradicate slavery in the British Empire. So he's, he's a Christian man and comes from a Greek Orthodox background. He wrote a book this last year called If You Can Keep It. If you can keep it. And the whole idea is now that we have this democracy, now that we have this idea of self-government in America, how are we going to maintain that? How are we going to keep it? The phrase, if you can keep it, actually came from 1787. It came from the end of the Constitutional Convention when after a hundred days of deliberations in Philadelphia, these men, these founding fathers had come up with a constitutional government. And it was going to be a republic. And Benjamin Franklin, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, walks out on the last day of just about 100 days of deliberations. And they'd signed and they'd all agreed to this, con this new constitution, three branches of government and all that stuff. And Franklin walks out and there's this old woman named Mrs. Powell who probably knew him for years and years in the 60 years off and on that Franklin had lived in Philadelphia. And Mrs. Powell comes up and he says, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? A monarchy or a republic? 
And Dr. Franklin quipped back to her. He says, Madam, we give you a republic, comma, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. And here we are 200 and some years later, and there's still the question of whether we can keep this democratic government. Now that we were free from British rule and oppression, what would we do with that freedom? What does an incoming, and let me give you another, an illustration. What, when you talk about freedom, only you have to learn how to use that freedom properly. Think of the college freshman. Think of the college freshman that comes onto a new college campus far away from home, far away from the overshadowing, perhaps the helicopter parenting <laughs> that he or she has been living under for years and years. And the college freshman comes into a new dorm and comes into a new college session, and they have more freedom than they've ever had before. Now, how are they going to use that freedom? How many college freshmen do you know who are really successful in using that newfound freedom that they had? It's not an easy thing to deal with, is it? With all that freedom, how are you going to use that, right? Are they going to be uh, able to govern themselves without mom and dad and any other authority looking over their shoulder all the time? Are they going to be able to keep themselves in line without somebody keeping them in line from the outside? Anyone who really grows up and this is a sign of maturity. This is a sign of adulthood. Anyone who really grows up has to learn how to govern himself or herself. We have to learn how to do it. It can't just be, well, I'll go ahead and behave. I'll go ahead and act right when somebody's watching me. If I know I'll get in trouble, then I'll go ahead and act right. But the minute I think no one's looking, the minute I think I can get away with it, well, I'm going to go ahead and break the law. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. You know, that is, that is what I would call an abuse of freedom. That is freedom to do whatever you want to do, not the freedom to do what you ought to do, right? And so we have a, a quote from Paul in the book of Galatians where he's talking about the freedom that we have in the new covenant, right? We're not under condemnation from the law and, and the commandments. We now have this freedom in Christ, but Paul says, it, now that you have this freedom, don't abuse it. Don't take it and throw it away and waste the freedom that God has given you in Christ. So he says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. We've got to learn the proper use of freedom. We've got to use our freedom in Christ not to indulge the sinful nature, but to use it to glorify God, to serve one another in love, to bring others into a growing relationship with our Creator, to honor God with the freedom that He's given us. And so what I want to do today is I'd rather say, you know, in, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, I would say rather than, than trumpeting our declaration of independence, we never actually become fully independent from any authority in our lives. What we want to really do as Christ followers is we want to have a declaration of dependence upon God, of saying, I'm going to follow Christ. I am going to live under His authority, and when I do that, when I choose to live under Christ's authority, He's actually going to give me more freedom than I ever would have had trying to live under the law and under the Old Testament, and always living under that guilt and that condemnation and that separation from God that comes from sin, I don't have to live that way anymore. I can live free in Christ. But by living free in Christ, it's not just for indulging the sinful nature. It's to be able to live the way that God created me to live, live the best version of me, 
to live the way that God, when he made me, he said, this is the way I want you to live your life. This is the kind of person I want you to be. Yeah, you're going to have your temperament and your character and your personality, but use it in such a way that glorifies God instead of just, quote, living for yourself. And so you were called to be free. That's what we're called to be. Now, last question of the day before we go to prayer and before we have the choir come up and sing us a great song. Question of the day was, we're called to be ministers of a new covenant. We're called to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. We're called to, from the moment that we say yes to following Jesus, he begins this process of transformation. He starts to make us less like our old selves and more like his son, Jesus. And so the question is, what can you and I do to cooperate with that transformation? How does that transformation even happen? We go down to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, and we see how personal transformation happens. When you get down to verse 18, it says, and we all who with unveiled faces, in other words, not like Moses, not like getting the Shekinah glory of God on his face. Oh, but over time it fades away because he's not in God's presence anymore. We don't ever have to go out of God's presence. We have the Holy Spirit living in us and indwelling us and empowering us all the time. We can radiate God's glory 24-7. And, if any, and what I want to say is if the glory of God doesn't radiate from our face, guess who moved away? It wasn't God moving away from us. It would be us moving away from God. So we can radiate God's glory in our lives all the time. We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. The more that you and I become like Jesus, the more glory is going to exude from our lives. Ever-increasing glory. Very much like Stephen in Acts chapter 6. On the day he died, the day Stephen became the first martyr, Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And it says he was arguing and, and with the unbelieving Jews, proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And they dragged him and they arrested him and they brought him before the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. And they said, as the, as the Jewish high council looked over at Stephen, they saw that his face was shining like the face of an angel. Stephen was living in the presence of Christ. Stephen was radiating the glory of Christ. And they saw that in him. We who with unveiled faces, we continue to contemplate the Lord's glory. When we continue to contemplate the Lord's glory, how do you do that? That transformation happens in very simple ways. How do you stay in God's presence? I know three ways. I know, well, there's more than that. But the three ways that came to mind was reading his word, Letting God's spirit speak to us through his word, praying to him, communicating with God, our creator and our redeemer. So reading his word and praying and then sharing his love with other people, sharing his good news with other people, fellowshipping with the body of Christ, not neglecting the assembling together where we learn how to grow together, to encourage one another, to teach one another, to admonish one another, to build up one another, to honor each other, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens. All of those one another's, when we do that together in the assembly of God's people together, we're going to collectively grow and build ourselves up in love. But we have to be together with other people to do it. 
So that's how we continue to grow with ever-increasing glory. And all of that change, that transformation, it says it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We can keep on shining His glory in ever-increasing ways. We don't have to cover our faces. We can let the bright glory of the Lord exude through us as the Lord's Spirit makes us more and more like Himself. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord Jesus, thank you for that promise that you say that you are in this process of life with us, walking with us day by day, and your role is to change us from the inside out. Your role is to transform us into the image, into the likeness of your son Jesus. And in doing so, you make us more and more competent as ministers, as servants, as managers of this new covenant agreement that we have with you in Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be cooperative in that. We pray that we wouldn't resist that transformation. Lord, change is hard sometimes. We need to be polished away from the rough edges of our old self and our old ways of acting, our old ways of thinking, our old ways of responding. God, we need to be more like you and less like the old us. And we need your spirit to continue to work in our lives to make that happen. So, Father, help us. Help us to be transformed daily into the image of your son. Help us to find the freedom where it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Lord, we pray that we would experience that freedom, that victory over the controlling, the clutches of sin, our old self and our old ways. God, we want to be free of that. So, Lord, we're asking for your help. Help us to walk in step with you each day. Help us to be reminded that we can be shining your glory in our lives as we spend time with you and your glory just fills us. And that glory doesn't have to end. It doesn't ever have to fade. We can continue to exude that by your grace and through your power. And we pray that you would do that in our lives and help us experience that freedom every single day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for initiating that new agreement with us. And we pray that we would do our part to live it out and to pass it on. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.